cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks is 10. And there's bees. And, you know, I really have, have come to consider soil microbes like it's a species. I mean, there are a lot. There's, when I said we raised 10 species, that was my belief. But the longer I've done this, the more things have all just run together. And I don't consider different species production like I used to. My, my whole perspective is continuing to evolve just as rapidly as it did 20 years ago. I mean, I just, I just keep seeing it more and more differently. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. Consider this your lucky day, people, because we have a five-star episode loaded into the barrel of a cannon and ready to launch high into the stratosphere. Why is this episode so grand, you might ask? Well, because Katie and I have an amazing conversation with the one, the only Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. This next hour of auditory bliss is a reflection of the special friendship that we are blessed to share with this very inspiring man of a man, man, man. If you're telling yourself, yeah, 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 I've fanboyed or fangirled out on every Will Harris podcast episode ever recorded. I know his story. I know his message. I'm really not in the mood to be serenaded by his profoundly Southern accent at this moment. I say stop. I hearken you to listen to this episode because we engage this man on some of the deeper layers of his psyche and learn more about the absolute legend than anyone has ever dared to venture. We dig into topics like bungee jumping off Victoria Falls, why Will thinks flip-flops are never appropriate, why he refuses to say the word vegan correctly. If you've ever heard him speak, he says, vegan, what's up with that? And we even get into some international domestic politics by venturing into the realm of Bill Gates and China and get Will's opinion on the childhood game of would you rather dot dot dot. This is all going to make sense after you listen to this episode. So sit back, enjoy the next hour of your life and soak in all the wisdom like the vitamin D blasting in your cells when you sit in the sun. Enjoy. Well, okay. So our friendship and our story goes way back. I think it's important for any good friendship to have a good origin story. And so this is like a story that you could tell around a campfire. And then our story kind of does start around a campfire. So how about we go all the way back to Zimbabwe many, many moons ago? How did we meet? It, it literally started around campfire. Uh, <laughs> so I was taking my holistic management training on Alan Savory's ranch in Zimbabwe and uh, the, the everybody thought I was in the thirties, twenties, thirties. I doubt if anybody was forty. Maybe Jason was, but not many. And there was two old men in their sixties there. Me and Jeff uh, from uh, Australia, and uh, we were the old men in the party. But we opened it up every morning at breakfast and closed it down every night. Uh, we look by the fire. And we were, everybody had gone to bed, but Jeff and I, and we were sitting out by the fire having a little drink. And uh, you, this this beautiful young couple walked up and looked like Snow White and Prince Charming. And uh, we, I kind of fell in love with them, and uh, we've been together ever since. It was uh, the young founders of Epic, and uh, just been a, a beautiful, beautiful friendship. I remember I was a little starstruck at that moment. I mean, what were the chances of um, running into Will Harris in, in Africa? Yeah, this was the farthest that we'd ever been away from our homes. Probably the farthest you'd ever been away from your home. We're in the middle of nowhere. We weren't even in Africa to go to the uh, Digongombe Center for Holistic Management. We were there 
because we were climbing uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and we were friends with the savory people, kind of got connected into that network. And Alan had always said, hey, if you're ever in the area, come out and visit us. And I think he was just being polite. I didn't think he thought we would actually show up, <laughs> but we were in the area. And so we literally swing by and we met you. So if that's not fate, if that's not destiny, I don't know what it is. Meant, uh, meant to be. Meant, meant to be. Definitely right? meant to be. Meant to be. And um, so there's a little bit of a rumor that when you were in uh, Zimbabwe, that you went to Victoria Falls and that you bungee jumped off the top of Victoria Falls. I just can't imagine that being true. Is that real? Did you wear a shirt? <laughs> Yeah, I did. I did. They, everybody was going to, but uh, only two of us did. Uh, me and a young lady there. That was a yeah. It was a you know a high place doesn't bother me. Is that the first uh, time it, that you've done that? It was. Like they are like doing it. I don't. I don't. Uh, high, 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 I have no fear of a high place. I'm very claustrophobic. I don't want to get up under anything, but I love a good high place. Were you it always cares to me to jump off of it? Were you ever in Zimbabwe or when you were in Africa? Did you ever find yourself feeling vulnerable to predation, to being a meal of one of the many uh, apex predators running around Alan Savory's ranch out there? You know, not no. I I, I guess uh, no, no, no. That, that just didn't cross my mind. Uh, no. Did, did you think about it? I, I, Constantly, it's all I was thinking about. <laughs> I mean, to be true, we we went out running in the mornings because that was kind of our our deal. And I remember Trey was was like, "You guys are insane. You you're loco for running around here in lion country." And and Trey said, if you guys are committed to doing this, either go out in groups or run with bed sheets attached to your body so you appear larger. Wow. <laughs> so was, so we did. Yeah. And we saw a pack of uh, wild dogs um, in the wild that morning, which was, that was really cool. That was definitely a highlight of the trip. Um, but then we also, and I think you met, did you, you remember meeting uh, Doji Way? The elephant. No. Oh, I'm sure you did. That big old elephant, that rescue elephant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't, I, I, I'm not, yeah, I do remember the little elephant. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, I, I, we, we, we rode on it, didn't we? Didn't we ride on that elephant? <laughs> I was a little elephant. Perhaps. We rode on it. I think so. Yeah, we did. We rode on the elephant. Well, yeah. that was a really sweet elephant, but when we were walking through town, the, what, I don't, is it called Victoria Falls? It was the Victoria Falls town. Whenever we were actually physically walking through there, there was one point where all these uh, locals just literally started hiding behind cars and jumping behind bushes. And it was because there was a a troop. Is that what they're called? Troops of elephants that had come in that were really aggressive and they were killing people in the town. Um, and Taylor and I were like, oh, elephants. Cool. Why are these people hiding? Don't you wear so sweet? Um, so anyway, that was like a Second time that we were terrified of the wild animals. Yeah, no doubt. Um, well, Will, we wanted to have you on the podcast. I mean, you're just a beloved supplier of ours at Force of Nature and a, and a good friend. And, and we just wanted to kind of dive into some stories and some tales and some quirks, some things that you don't typically talk about on podcasts because people don't know the right questions to ask you. And so... The first question that... Well, I will just say, you know, like you have an incredible story. I feel like you can, uh, people can find it pretty much anywhere. You've been on tons of podcasts. You've been on the Joe Rogan podcast. You, people can go and listen to your story on that. But we wanted to dive into things like a little bit, I want to say, yeah, more personal, more, more personal stuff. More personal. And, and the first one is pretty personal. And I think anyone who's ever corresponded with you... You know, you're easy to get a hold of. You you respond to emails, but if someone writes you an email, they're going to get a response and it might freak them out a little bit at the beginning because it's going to be in all caps and probably some exclamation marks. And it appears as if you're yelling or pissed off on your end of the computer. Now, why is your caps <laughs> lock button broken on your computer keyboard or what's going on there? Yeah, I'm not sure I even know where that is. Uh, I, uh, it's, yeah, I do. I just <laughs> don't, uh, I, you know, I never learned how to type. So I type with two fingers, 
And I found it when I was first figuring out the keyboard and responding to people. It just it was so inconvenient to reach over there and make the, the capital letter. So I just locked. When I found out there was a caps lock, I took advantage of it. And uh, I certainly <laughs> don't intend to sound like I'm yelling at people. I don't yell at people too much. And uh, and you said exclamation points. So I, I don't think I've ever used an exclamation point. I just... <laughs> I've been um, misinterpreted several of your emails based on them being in all caps, thinking you're mad, angry, and I'd have to have somebody else reread them and try no, to break no. them down. I hadn't, I hadn't, I, I hadn't been angry in a long time. I, I, I don't know. You. We were on an email thread, or maybe it was a text thread, maybe like six months ago, or you were you were pretty mad. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't say I've never been angry. <laughs> <laughs> Not today. Um, so if, if you're all caps on email, uh, I think text message too, right? All caps? Yeah. Okay. So text message. What if you're going to write like a poem or a love letter to your wife? Is, is that all caps? You know, my wife would uh, divorce me if I wrote her a, a love letter or a poem because she would know I was guilty of something <laughs> trying to make up for it. <laughs> yeah, I've been, we've been married since 1977. How long is that like? How many years is 40 years? So I'm very bad at mental math. It's, it would be uh, it would be very uh, telling of something oh. if I started writing poems and love letters and shit after that period of time. It'd be off brand. Um, <laughs> okay. So then to wrap that up, um, I've never been more excited about the release of a of a book that's coming out, and you have a book coming out, and it's uh, everyone's anticipated. I pre-ordered it, and so it should be here any day. Honestly, I'm gonna binge read it. But is that uh, is that in all caps? No, but I didn't. I didn't actually do. I dictated it. I didn't write it. They uh, they hired the Penguin Random House. Hired a lovely young lady who's the same age as my middle daughter to uh, write the book, and I, I, I feel I feel kind of in love with her a little bit. She's a sweetheart. Her name is Emily Graven. She's from England originally, lives in uh, California now, and she she writes books for other people. That's that's what she does. She's done several, and uh, and she was just brilliant. Uh, we. And, and, you know, I don't know whether she is that this incredibly smart or has some sort of computer program that helped her. But uh, she came and spent a lot of time here. But then we had a fr Friday afternoon date every Friday afternoon by phone, one to three hours. I, it, I was exhausted when we get through. And it was her asking me questions. And then not not and you know, they weren't one word questions. I'd have to tell a, a story. And uh, she would ask me a question, and I would respond. I would respond. She said, "Wait a minute, you told me," and would quote exactly what I had said about another situation that was seen contrary to what I was telling her that day. And I'd say, "Whoa, oh no, 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 that's a different scenario," and I'd, I'd explain it to her, but. I can't believe she had that kind of recall. If she, she does, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. But I, I got to believe there's some sort of computer program that triggered back and forth somehow. Maybe she's AI. Yeah, you, did you actually meet her? Oh, yeah. She came in. She spent okay. a lot of time here. I mean, yeah. you can still yeah. be. She Maybe she's a robot. <laughs> that, that, you know, AI to, me, AI to me is artificial insemination. I know. <laughs> 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 when I was at the University of Georgia, we learned in, 19, in the 70s, 1970s, not 1870s, we, we, we had courses in AI. And, and at that time, it was, it was artificial insemination, and we learned how to do that. I like the hand movement. A sign language. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so go. So kind of like backing up just a step about how you say you just like a cool as a cucumber, really mellow temper, never mad. Um, one time I I heard you, or maybe this was actually in a text thread. This was the text thread I, that I, I was referring to. You said something along the lines of, 
<clears throat> in the South, when you refer to someone, wait, no, you you called someone having an alligator mouth with a hummingbird ass, and you said that's what we say in the South, and that was kind of I'd say aggro. But what is what does that mean? What is an alligator mouth with a hummingbird ass? Uh, well, I, mean, I think it speaks for itself. You know, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of talk and not much uh, torque behind it. <laughs> I feel like it's a good phrase. We should pick that up here in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but we don't have alligators. It's, it's, it's been around for a long time. That is funny. Um, we have to modify that uh, mosquito ass and what would the mouth be? I mean, we have a million things that bite you, but nothing that's scary as an rattlesnake. Yes, a rattlesnake mouth, humming a mosquito ass. That's what we're going to say. Our Texas version. <laughs> um, thanks for adding some clarity on that. I hope people can add that to their repertoire of insults now who are listening mm-hmm. to this show. Um, profoundly southern. No, 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 that would fall in the category of profoundly southern. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so another um, thought that I just want to visit is one of the first times we ever met you. I mean, we're we're ride or die flip-flop people. You know, here in the studio, Katie, myself, Morgan from Force of Nature, we're all wearing flip-flops. And when we went out to White Oak Pastures, you were just like disgusted. I thought maybe right then and there you were just going to say, beat it, we're not selling you any beef. But you, you just hung in there and then we got to talking about it and you said like, if someone ever wears flip-flops to work, to me that either says that A, they're not going to work, or B, they're lazy, or something along those lines. Have you reversed that position yet now that there's um, an emerging trend of flip-flops, especially in agriculture? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, if you, anyway, I think, I think that I recounted, that day I recounted to you that uh, one of my managers showed up wearing flip-flops. And uh, I, I told him that when you do that, you send a crystal clear message to me your boss and all your employees, I ain't going to do shit today. <laughs> <laughs> and that is not, that is not a good message to send. So I agree. That's a terrible message to send. I feel, um, I mean, Alan Savory might take that to a whole nother level. Cause that, that guy's, I think owned the same pair of shoes since 1977. Cause most of the time he's barefoot. So do you, th- do you find a distinction in barefoot versus flip-flop out on a pasture? And, uh, you know, Alan Savory could probably uh, throw a beer bottle down on an asphalt and stomp it into little pieces without cutting his foot. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I'm, I'm wearing a pair of double-D roper boots right now, and Alan Savory's foot is probably as tough as this, as this boot is. <laughs> He, he's, he's, he's quite an amazing man. When we were there uh, and we went to his little hut, he, uh, he was working on the computer that morning and came out and he had some wasp things on his face. And uh, we were like, holy shit, are you, is your face okay? You look a little deformed. And he was like, no, those are the, uh, those are the wasps that sting me three times a week. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just lets them be. And yeah, walking around, no shoes on out there. He definitely takes... He wrote a he wrote a little little blurb from a book. I sent him a, a an email and asked him would he write a little blurb recommendation, whatever you call it, from a book. And he did. But he sort of got on my ass a little bit about some positions I'd taken on some things. He he he, he takes no prisoners. <laughs> he, did, he, he wrote the blurb. He did do it. <sighs> nice. He sees the opportunity to get on my ass a little bit. <laughs> um, so, I, I guess just to find your, make it crystal clear your position, your current position on flip flops. Have you ever worn flip flops ever? No, no. It's uh, they're like thong. They're like thongs for your feet. You Have know, you ever that, gotten that, grounded? Like just like barefoot in the grass? Well, I, I mean, I. I stayed barefooted until I was 16 years old. And we, 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 we were raised barefoot. But now? When I got, when I was able to come up with a pair of uh, double D roper boots, I've been in them ever since. Sleep in them. <laughs> well, okay. So we're getting, I mean, we're putting you in the hot seat here. And I feel like we're just getting after some, some clarity 
Um, another topic that I wanted to just breeze over was you're you're a smart man. You get away with a lot with your Southern accent, but to this day, you refer to vegans still as vegans. And um, I just I know you know that's not what how to say the word, but you're just like I don't care. I'm going to say it my way. What? It, it just that's just kind of the way that comes out. I can say vegan, but when I think about it, it's vegan. And I, <laughs> you know, this, I, I, uh, that English grammar always kind of threw me a little bit. You know, the rule is it's long e, and that's just a short e, and let's just use with an i, and, and I always struggled with that. I just feel like your accent allows you to be. So, like, I feel like you and I are pretty honest people, say it how it is, but you get away with a lot more than I do because your accent is so cute. <laughs> I weigh 240 pounds. That might help. <laughs> Fair. I was going to say, I think it's a it's an, an age thing, too. I think when you're a man and you, you're over 50, you just have a different presence in the room. People just listen a little bit differently. Well, and I think that it's uh, if you don't care much, you know, people respond to uh, uh, sensitivities, and, and and if you if you just really don't care too much what other people think, then they don't they're less critical. Good advice. That's how I live. I still don't give a shit what people think, but I still don't get away with as much as you do. I'm Baby, you get away with a lot. Do I? <laughs> don't, don't play victim with me, sugar. <laughs> You're a badass. And I, I recognize you as a badass before I ever met you at a, uh, what was that thing? There was some event in Atlanta that you went to and you were in a booth right across from me. Oh, yeah. And, uh, the whole yeah, producers a, thing. I don't remember what it was, but you were you, you you were the prettiest girl in the room, and all those young men were flirting with you, and you you just you you, you were like a dose of cold water on them. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like your your daughters, uh, Jenny. I feel like Jenny and Katie have a lot of personality carryover. One time, you might not even know this story, Will, but one time we were at a conference um, in Colorado in Boulder. And there was like this weird hit piece smear article that was put out before the conference about how terrible Katie and I were and how we basically just single-handedly put the Native American population in poverty by creating Epic. And this lady, Katie was up on stage and she was already a little insecure. And Jenny, your daughter was there and we kind of just said, hey, Jenny, we got this weird vibe about the event. The energy's a little bit off. This is kind of a super woke crowd. I don't know what's going to happen. And Jenny was like... I got your fucking back. <laughs> and after Katie got on stage, I mean, it was like Jenny was secret service. She was. She scanned the I, crowd I, and she found one lady beelining towards Katie. And it was like a setup. This this woman was actually the author of that piece. And she was coming up to confront you with a cell phone camera to try to get you to say something horrible. And uh, Jenny was just like, I'm about to drop this lady I right here. I was literally here. like crawling under tables trying to get away from this lady and Ginny was like, she fucking had my back. Yeah, she <laughs> she would have gone to jail. For real. And I think she really would have. <laughs> it is amazing. She's a, she, 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 you know, I, my daughters are all, they're, they're, they're tough. I, I give them credit. And they weren't, and they weren't raised to be tough. You know, my, I was, uh, when my daughters were were coming up. Uh, I was leaving home every morning at, at at five and not getting back every night till nine or ten. And my wife raised our children, and they were raised on the farm. But you know, they were raised like suburb kids. They they were on the farm, but they didn't work on the farm because I didn't even think for them to do. We were cowboying, and they didn't know how to do that. They, they, you know, they went to ballet and piano lessons and and all that stuff, softball and and, and it, but you know they just turned out to be really strong, tough ass people, which I'm glad. You know, they they've got to run this business, and, and I'm, uh, I'm 
delighted they did, but I didn't expect it. And I don't really know how to credit that, but I'm very grateful for it. It's because children are always observing. And so intentionally or not, whatever you were doing, they were watching every second of it. Whatever. But I'm uh, very grateful for it. That's really cool. What what, what are the kind of the the characteristics that you think are are valuable for children to to embody, especially when you look at your daughter daughters right now, like you said, they're tough. What else do you see that makes you really proud and you think is important? You know, lack of fear. You know, the, there's a, you know, there's a lot bad that can happen in any circumstance in the world. And you can go through life fearing that occasion or, or not fearing the occasion, and my daughters don't. They, uh, they, they. I, mean, I don't mean they're reckless. I don't mean they, they uh, leap blindly, but they're not afraid of the consequence. You know, it just, if it, if it, we do the best we can. If it, uh, the circumstance uh, emerges that is where something unpleasant has got to be done, we just do something unpleasant. Yeah. Do you remember when, um, so whenever Epic was selling it to General Mills, you were the, you were the first person we told and we came out to the ranch to tell you that because we just wanted to tell you face to face. And we, we were so horrified to tell you this because we didn't want you to think differently of us or we didn't want it to compromise our relationship, especially as you being a friend and a supplier. And, and I remember you just had some profound insight on that very topic of fear. Do you remember what Will said about uh, people in corporations operating out of fear, getting shot? Yeah, I wrote it down on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're if you if you don't remember what I'm saying, I'll do my best to paraphrase it, and then maybe you'll you'll remember. But you said like, in 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 corporations, the person that sticks their neck out on the line and takes the risk, takes the chance, that's the person that's the first to get the boot, first to get fired if that plan doesn't work out. And so everyone that's operating in those systems is just operating from a place of security. Um, no risk and, and uh, an aversion to that. Do you remember that a little bit? Uh, I, well, the, uh, I mean, it's consistent with what I believe. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that uh, that the one of the many things that's wrong with corporate America is this uh, conditioning to be part of the pack. And and not not take take not take the chance not not incur the risk, uh, you know. I, I when uh, when I graduated from Georgia, uh, I believed until about a week before graduation I was coming back home to, to run the farm. And I don't know why I was so stupid as to think that my dad, who was a lot younger then than I am now, was going to just go inside and let me run the farm. But that's what I thought, and I. He told me one Sunday afternoon when I was leaving to go back to, to the university that uh, I need to get a job. I, I couldn't come back to the farm. So I did. I got a job with a uh, uh, Fortune 500 company. It was an ag co-op called Goldkist. It's no longer in business. <clears throat> and I hated every friggin' day I worked for that company. But I did real, real good. I was the youngest regional manager they had, and uh, I, I, I performed. But the reason that I performed and did well was certainly not that I was smarter than those other guys. I was not smarter than those other guys. Probably were smarter than me. But I would take the risk. And it was a very corporate kind of a company. And taking risks was just not something that was done much. And you know, my the risks I took for the most part wound up being successful one way or the other. Sometimes it wasn't exactly the way I planned it, but it it, it was made to work. So uh you know, I just believe that uh that not not having fear is uh, fear is just such an impediment to success. Incredible impediment to success. And so many people live in fear. And I, I I just want to get them by the ears and say, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you've taken that mindset and you've definitely, uh, it was why you were able to transition your farm from conventional to regenerative. It's because you're like willing to take those risks. A lot of people are just so scared. Well, fear is, you know, there's, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. I don't know who said that, but it's just, it's just really a profound thing. And somehow we've, we've, you know, our society just seems to live in fear and it, it disturbs me. And my daughters don't. And, <clears throat> well, um, we used to, you know, we're with you in this fact that we've always operated independent family businesses, very entrepreneurial spirits. And, and when we were early in our entrepreneurial endeavors, we were always afraid of these big multinational companies. It's like, hey, they have so much power. They have the brightest people. They have unbelievable resources, crazy legal teams. At any given point in time, <clears throat> what we're doing, we could get smoked because we just don't have that talent and and the coffers to accelerate growth. And it wasn't really until we um, started, you know, that transition with Epic into General Mills that we saw <clears throat> these small companies, they have all everything they need to win. Uh, they can move so much faster. They can take the right risk, the right calculated risk. And what's the worst thing that can happen if, if you take a risk and it doesn't work out, right? You just get your, pick yourself back up and try again. Um, and so that was a really clear moment for us that was very empowering for people who are independently owned, family owned, small entrepreneurial operators. You guys have such an advantage when facing up face to face with these big corporations. And, and what you want to do, you know, these are, uh, it, it, we've had a number of opportunities to sell our business to big companies and, and chose not to do it. It's okay if you do, but we chose not to. And the reason we chose not to is we wanted to remain in control, a small family-owned business that was fine with us, and you know, getting uh, you know money for the transaction was less important to us than keeping control of the company. And when we, but when we made that decision, uh, we made we inadvertently, or uh, in addition to it, made the decision to keep it small because we can never be, you know, but so big. And it's okay. It's fine. You know, we, you know, one of the things that is just so fortunate about the direction that we come in for us is uh, we we don't want to have a big national or multinational company. Don't we're not we're literally not smart enough, sophisticated enough to run a company like that. But it's okay because we don't want to. And the direction we went in with White Oak Pastures almost uh, uh, ensured that we were going to stay local. And we, we, I really don't think there should ever be or will ever be a big multinational White Oak Pastures kind of deal. I think we're meant to be local food suppliers. I think that one of the one of the things that's most wrong with this really wrong system is how we have uh, uh, turned it into such a huge global food distribution system. And I think that's, that's 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 not where it's supposed to be. You know, I'm I'm glad I can get coffee and chocolate here, which, but I don't want to be dependent upon uh, the 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 big multinational companies to feed me. You know, I want to be able to produce my foods here. I think it's better for the land, for the animals. I know it's better for the community. Taylor and I talk about this a lot. Um, and we and we talk about what would actually grow in, uh, in Texas. Like, what could we actually eat if we weren't importing food from the rest of the country and the rest of the world? And in Texas, it's literally like you would eat meat. And maybe forage some berries. And that's kind of all we would have access to because the land just isn't suited to grow anything else, really. Yeah. That's the, well, and the, the, you know, the, the Native Americans that populated your part of the world, you know, I'm sure, were very you know, meat centric right. you know, diets. Yeah. So um, I've, I think another phrase that really sticks out when I think about 
talking to you on multiple occasions over the years. You like to talk about how every man needs a cunning plan. You, you say that, right? That's like... You, you need a cunning plan. Ab- absolutely. And, uh, and I probably said every man needs a cunning plan. You did. Katie, but I meant every person. Not I'm not insulted by person. it. Katie knows. Please, 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 please don't be... Uh, I'm not woke. But, uh, c- c- gender, g- it's not gender specific. Cunning plans are very important across gender lines. So what? what is your cunning plan? Uh, you know, my, of course, it, we, there are cunning plans of evolve on a, a fairly regular basis, but uh, it was to have uh, this farm that we've got. You know, it, it's it's pretty much as similar to yours. It's it's pretty much worked out the way I wanted it to. It always working out. You know, it's not there's no way start and stop to it. There's a start and it goes on and leads to the next to the next to the next. And uh, I have uh, uh, one of the things that's all that's that's really pleasant for me at this point in my life is when I well so let me go back further so you know my my great grandfather grandfather and father all ran this farm before I did secessionally uh, and they all ran it very autonomously. You know, they, they were the only decision maker on the farm. They had people that worked for them, but they were the decision maker. And I came back and ran it the same way when, when I did take over the farm. Uh, I had three or four minimum wage sorts of people here that helped me run the farm, but I was the only decision maker. And uh, when I started changing the farm, turned into the, the, the meat distribution business, production business that we are, uh, I still was the only decision maker. We got up, I bet I had 50 or 60 employees, and I was the only one that made decisions. I just talked to people all day long, didn't get much done. But we uh, uh, put uh, other layers of, finally had to put other layers of management in, and that wound up being very pleasant for me. And then when my two daughters came back, they became managers and their spouses became managers. And now, uh, you know, I I technically still run the farm, but there are seven directors that manage 20-something managers that manage 150 other employees. So that, that having that structure in place is just very pleasing to me and Putting that together was the cunning plan for a couple of decades, and now operating it is a cunning plan, and a secession program is the cunning plan. You know, I'm 69 years old, and I'm still, you know, I'm still able to, you know, I still work, and and will work as long as I'm, so I can't work anymore. <clears throat> but having a, a plan in place so that the farm will go on when I'm not here anymore, is a big deal for me. And it's it's now in place. We've got we've got that. You know, we 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 uh if I if I if I fell over right now, the farm would be okay. It'd be fine. That's amazing. We um uh, you know going out to White Oak Pastures on multiple occasions, just the highlight of the trip for me. I mean, there's so much to take in, but I, I love, I adore the tours that you give. Um, and, uh, they're just so, so sweet and so personal. And, and I think like every time that Katie and I are, are home and we see someone driving down the highway, like 40 miles under the speed limit, we're like, Oh, there's Will Harris. And because <laughs> on those tours, <laughs> we're, we we really slow down to really take in all the fine details. Uh, have you ever gotten a speeding ticket for driving too slow? No, no. I was forever in trouble for driving too fast as a as a young man. I mean, I've I've, I've uh, had to get uh, I call it rogues insurance. I couldn't get a regular insurance company to insure me. And it was horribly expensive and didn't have any coverage. And uh, I've evolved full scale. If I was traveling, I'd probably drive fast now. But if I'm if I'm on White Oak Pastures, I want to go slow and look. You know, that's, that's the reason I'm out is to look. Yes. 
Yeah, well, you um you you drive quite a bit. I mean, you were out at our conference a couple of years ago, and you drove to Central Texas, which we appreciated that trip. And um, wh- what's up with that? Like, is driving better than flying in general? Is that a general rule? Are you are you afraid of flying, or do you just like driving with your weapons, or I what's hate, what's going I'm on? Not, I'm not afraid of anything, but I don't like flying. It's just, uh, you know, I'm not very tall, but I'm wide, and those little, even first class seats, are so small, and and I just, I, and I'm a little claustrophobic. I told you that earlier. And I just, I just hate getting on the damn airplane, and I will fly, but if I can drive it in twelve or thirteen hours, that'd be all right. And don't forget this, you know, I'm, uh, I'm three and a half hours from the airport, the Atlanta airport. By the time I leave here and drive to the Atlanta airport, three and a half hours. And you got to get there a couple hours before the plane takes off or you're you're screwed in that big old airport. So that's, uh, let's say, five and a half hours coming and going. And then you got to be on the damn airplane with those. (laughs) <laughs> they always put me between two guys as big as I am. So I, I, it just, it's just, it's just easier to drive. What do you do when you're driving? And, and, I, and when I when I drive, if there's a departure delay, I caused it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What do you listen to? Podcasts, books? Do you listen to music? Do you listen to silence? What do you do? No, no. You know, I, I go. You know, I, I don't. I don't. I go back and forth between. Uh, uh, I love going back and forth between Fox and CNN. I just, I, I just <laughs> back it's just fun to me to hear. The, the, and I don't believe either one of them, but to hear them report on an incident and get the, how, how very different the perspectives are coming into it is hilarious to me. I'm going to have to try that one out. I think I'll scramble my brain too much. Um, that's That's amazing. You know, you're really well known for your multi-species regenerative uh, approach, and you raise different types of ruminants, different type of poultry animals. Uh, is there, are you at twelve species right now, or has it gone up or down? I wanna. Are you, how many species of livestock right now are you guys raising? Ten. Well, t- t- you know, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks is ten. Then there's bees and you know, I really have, have come to consider soil microbes like it's a species. I mean, there are a lot. There's when I said we raised ten species, that was my belief. But the longer I've done this, the more things have all just run together, and I don't consider different species production like I used to. My my whole perspective is continuing to evolve just as rapidly as it did 20 years ago. I mean, I just I just keep seeing it more and more differently. So, That's why I love you. I know, right? It's constantly learning, constantly evolving. That is very inspiring. I think one thing that sticks out to us, it's you, you never messed around with bison. You've done like every other land animal in North America. That's like a livestock species, but you're like, I'm not doing bison. But is there, is there something that I don't know about bison, or are you just bison phobic? You know, I can I can certainly explain it to you. I think I, mean, I like bison. I think they're great. I enjoy looking at them, and I, I actually went over to Alabama to buy a herd. Kind of, probably, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, a small herd was selling, and I've got about 150 something miles of fence on this place. You know, we got it cross fence permanently, and it's and it's from uh, mostly well, some 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 page wire. Most of it's a, a high tensile wire. Most of it's three to five strands, depending on how much pressure each paddock is under. And uh, I went and looked at those, and, and it. it it has taken me all my life to build that 150-something miles of fence and all my money to build that 150-something miles of fence. And I went over and looked at those bison, and I thought they were beautiful. And I knew my fence wouldn't hold them. <laughs> and I knew I uh, I was a lot younger then, but I was too damn old to build a, rebuild 150-something <laughs> miles of fences. So uh, I, I, I think bison are great. I just uh, was completely uh, focused on 
my large ruminants being cattle, and it built all my infrastructure <clears throat> to to handle cattle. You know, I got a I've <clears throat> got a really nice corral system that your bison would tear all to pieces. <laughs> and I, I was just too financially committed to cattle by the time bison became a thing. You know, when I first started down this route, uh, people were giving bison away. I mean, it was people were losing money. You know, this is back in the what nineties, maybe even before that. Uh, you couldn't give bison away, and I so I I never considered that direction. And by the time I did, I was too financially uh, invested sure. in cattle as my large ruminants. But you know, we want, you know, we want a large ruminant and small ruminants and then monogastrics. And you, you know how you, 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 st- you stage the deal so that they can manage your land. I think one of the, the coolest thing about your cows, though, is that these are some of the original descendants, you know, of the the herd that your great great grandfather, you know, some Harris family member of yours, was managing many many years ago, and so just the having those genetics, yeah, yeah circulating <clears throat> and the same animals within your family, yeah, well, that's so cool. One of the things that made me really want to have bison, I told you I didn't, and why I didn't, but I did want to. And the reason is, I'm sure you know, but a lot of people know the cattle are not indigenous to North America. You know, the, the cattle were brought over here originally by the Spaniards, and they went feral. And the cattle that uh, my great-grandfather brought here were f- uh, cracker cattle that uh, were the descendants of those cattle that the Spaniards brought that went, that went feral. <clears throat> and... That's what my grandfather had, and he saved his own heifers and saved his own bulls. My grandfather did. Uh, I think my dad is the one that started buying purebred bulls. My my grandfather may have. I'm unclear on that, but it was fairly recently that we started buying purebred imported bulls to improve the herd. And between my dad and my I bet you we've had at least one of every breed of bull that's ever been to Georgia from <laughs> Akayushi to Shorthorn to Brahman to, 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 to. And, and mongrelized, we kept the female. We always saved females and bought bulls, right? So the, the herd goes back to the original herd my great grandfather brought. <clears throat> but uh, we mongrelized the hell out of them with that flavor of the month bull club. And uh, uh, probably 10 years ago, I don't really know how long ago it was, probably 10 years, uh, I quit saving. I, I, I didn't, I did not castrate a calf crop. It was when, i tell you what it was. It was when I was doing business with Whole Foods Market. They formed a global animal partnership. And to get to step five plus, uh, you didn't, there was no physical alteration, so you couldn't castrate. So I said, you know, shit, I'll try it. So I didn't castrate that crop and realized that I was buying butter bulls. I mean, I was raising butter bulls and I was buying. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, it just makes sense. In retrospect, I don't know why I was that, that stupid because I had, you know, seven, 800 mama cows at the time. So I was raising three or 400 bull calves, and I was buying bulls from a guy that had probably 50 cows, raising 25 bulls, and saving the best ones for himself. Right. So it's just just the numbers. So I uh, I, I, I ceased to castrate and uh, save my own bulls, and I just love it. I just love that program. And it has changed my herd genetics Drastically, my herd, my cows don't look the same. They're they're shorter, thicker, more muscular. But I'm, I'm saving those kinds of bulls, and I'm literally developing a breed. You know, it, it's full of that hodgepodge of genetics from all over the planet. But now I'm folding it back upon itself, and they're increasingly consistent. And it will be a breed of cattle one day in my you know my grandson's lifetime. 
That's so cool. I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Well, there uh, the beef tastes amazing too. Very adapted for your region. When we were there, probably the last time we were there, Katie might have even been pregnant. We went to the to the abattoir with you, and we were walking around, and there was a, a fresh heart in the in the abattoir, and you pulled out a pocket knife. And, it was a liver. Oh, it was a liver. I was pregnant, and he made me eat it, and uh, then I was like, "I'm gonna act really tough for Will," <laughs> and I was chewing you. it, and I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> I'm gonna throw up." Uh oh. <laughs> no, you volunteered, and you loved it. I don't know why you're acting no, like that. I, I did. I loved it when I wasn't pregnant and I had it there, but I didn't love it as I was pregnant and chewing it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty hardcore move. I love that moment, though. Um, you know, <clears throat> Katie is uh, I was getting some input on this interview and some things that she wanted to talk about. And she had one thing. She was just like, you better ask Will this question. You better ask Will this question. And it's kind of an, a new segment, and it's Would You Rather. Do you remember playing that game when you were a little kid? Like, would you rather do this or that? And, and both both questions suck, but you have to pick one. Did you ever no, play I'm that? Not too, I'm, not, I'm not too old to start. So. <laughs> it's the best game. Okay. This will become your new nightly dinnertime routine with your family. Would you rather? Do you want to ask him or do you want me to ask him? Uh, you go ahead. Okay, the rules of this game are pretty simple. You, it's... Uh, you have to pick option A or option B, but it's ha- it's a hard choice. Both options kind of suck, but it's just, you know, it helps you frame where your head's coming from and, and maybe give an explanation. So Katie's question is, would you rather forcibly sell your land to Bill Gates or to China? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wow. Good, horrible scenario. It's a good one. <laughs> Who who gives a damn? <laughs> <laughs> At that point, uh, it might be the same choice. Yeah, a I, mean, I, I, I mean, both of them are horrible results, and I just can't imagine. You know, uh, I I guess Bill Gates, because at least I could understand what he said. You know, but I, <laughs> I, 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 probably, I probably didn't like what he said. But, <laughs> At least you can comprehend. You know, I, I think. I think that. Uh, you know. I don't think that. Uh, you know. I don't. I don't. I, I, you know. Certainly, I don't know Bill Gates. I don't know much about him. I read a little bit. Not much. Not as much as most people. But you know, I don't necessarily. I mean, and maybe he's evil and horrible. I don't. I don't have any right to think that. But I do know. I do know that he is a very linear thinking technocrat. And that's who ought not own the land. That's who ought not, I mean, that's who ought not control land. He can own anything he wants to. This is America. You, you can you can buy anything you want to buy, and I, I respect it. I'd go to war to, to help to, so that you could do it. But uh, bring in that very linear, technical uh, uh, approach to a, a living biological farm environment is absolutely the wrong thing to do, and and I, apparently he is, you know, he's been so successful doing what he's doing. I can't see him rethinking it. I, I, I get it. Well, I'll let him know that you picked him. Okay. Right. <laughs> um. So I think we could probably edit that to where you said Bill Gates. Yeah. 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 Bill Gates. Edit that. That'll be the highlight for the show. <laughs> Bill Gates. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Well. So last question that we have for you is that actually the name of this podcast. It's it, but I'm going to form it in the frame of a question. Where does hope grow? Hope grows in uh, any ecosystem that is managed in a way that allows it to manifest itself. You know, one of the things I think we do so wrong is, and and I, I'll say this: I got I got dear friends who are responsible for these uh, agric- agricultural management uh, certification systems. And I respect them. They're my friends. I love them. But the those systems tend to treat all land the same. I mean, you, you have rules that you're to follow, and they're good rules. 
but they're the same in Maine and Oregon and Arizona and Florida. Right. And the ecosystems are different from here, you know, to five down the road. miles that way versus five miles that The ecosystems are so different. And where we have really just uh, absolutely flown in the face of nature is uh, having these management systems for managing for managing these ecosystems that are you know you, it's got to be something that can be taught at the University of Georgia or Auburn or the University of Florida or wherever, and it just doesn't work like that. It's 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 too. Uh, too individually tailored to fit certain ecosystems. And when we uh, have these uh, geographically diverse systems that we try to put in place, it, it, it doesn't work. It, it just absolutely uh, does not allow nature to optimize itself. So I'm going to rephrase the No, I'm not. I'm going to re-ask it. So where does hope grow? Hope grows in any any ecosystem that is managed the way it should be. I mean, you know, think about that. Think about that. Uh, and I, that's what I meant to answer the first time. I just got off on a tangent. But you think about think about how beautiful the, the Earth is. Like those shots from the outer space. That Earth, the Earth is just beautiful. Mm -hmm. But then we humans, we destructive humans. Have, are fucking it up so incredibly wrongly that hope can't grow. You know, hope, hope grows on that beautiful, unaffected earth that is not uh, so adversely affected by this human being, this horrible species called humans. It's pressing. <laughs> um. Well, so the new book is called A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. Um, people can buy that directly through whiteoakpastures.com along with a bunch of different yummy meats get delivered to your door um, or Amazon. I think I'll pre-order mine on Amazon probably. But uh, when does that book uh, get launched officially? When is it shipping? The 10th, next week. Holy moly. Are y'all doing yeah. a big celebration? Or is it just another Life night? Life is a celebration. Yeah. We, 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 we've... Uh, yeah, we 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 we're celebrating it all the time, and uh, but I, it's uh, it's being sold by all the usual suspects. You know, the and, and on our website it tells who all the uh, all the distributors are selling Amazon, all the rest of them. Okay, good. Huh. Well, we're gonna start a book club here in Austin, probably with the Force of Nature team. Mandatory reading. We're going to discuss it. It's going to be, I just can't wait. So thank no, you. Don't, for, make, don't, don't make them do it. No, that's, that's how you make people hate you. You know, you give them the option, but don't, don't make them do it. Oh, we're doing it. No, that's like self-help books or something. This is just a good story book by a, a, a legendary American hero. So thank you so much for everything you've done, Will. Yeah, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, thank it's always thank a blessing. Boy, oh boy, that was a fun conversation. Just a few old friends catching up around a campfire, bouncing all over the map of human experience. If you want to learn more about Will and White Oak Pastures, go check them out. It's whiteoakpastures.com. Or you can hear his expanded life story on the Joe Rogan podcast. It's probably my favorite Joe Rogan episode of all time. And if you want to join my voluntary mandatory book club, you can also order a copy of Will's new book, which is called A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, and have it shipped to your door. This podcast was wished upon a shooting star by Force of Nature. That's the regenerative meat company that my wife Katie and our friend Robbie founded. If you want to support White Oak Pastures and you want to support the makers and the sponsors of this podcast, Force of Nature, head over to our website and order some grass-fed beef. It's very likely going to have come from the regenerating pastures of White Oak Pastures. Heck, it might even be a cow that Will ate the liver of raw just to make sure that it was up to his standards. So head over to www.forceofnature.com or hell, head over to whiteoakpastures.com 
and order up some amazing soil building, carbon sequestering superfoods and have them shipped right to your door. If you are an avid listener, you've probably figured out that sometimes at the end of each episode, I will say a little prayer. And today's prayer is going to be that of Will Harris. I've heard him say this many times around the dinner table. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it goes something like this. We are thankful for the hard and meaningful work that you provide us. And we are grateful for the strong and resilient bodies that give us the ability to do your work. Now, if that's not the prayer of a farmer, I don't know what is. Amen. Amen.